Hello and welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. Personalized learning has been an education buzzword for several years. A recent survey by the State Education Technology Directors Association put personalized learning at the top of the list of state priorities. But how do school leaders really do personalized learning? A new book offers something like a step-by-step manual. It's called Pathways to Personalization, a Framework for School Change, written by two longtime school innovators, Kathy Sanford, and by our guest today, Sean Rubin. Rubin spent 10 years in the classroom, and he's also been the chief education officer at Highlander Institute since 2011. And he's led personalized learning efforts in Rhode Island schools. He designed the Highlander Institute's FUSE program, which trains educators to lead personalized learning efforts in schools and districts. Ruben was featured at the EdSurge Fusion Conference back in October, and he sat down with EdSurge CEO Betsy Corcoran to talk about the book and what he's learned about personalized learning. Here's the conversation. Hi, so I'm Betsy Corcoran. I'm CEO and co-founder of EdSurge, and I am really pleased to be here today with Sean Rubin. And Sean is the author of a new book, Pathways to Personalization, a Framework for School Change. And um, what I love about Pathways to Personalization is it's almost a manual. It's almost a here's how you do it. So let's take a couple of minutes, talk to me a little bit about how you came to write the book, and then we'll go into some of the details. Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for having me, Betsy. Um, you know, I've been a huge fan of Ed Surge and you for a very long time. And so it's exciting to be here. It's really exciting to have an opportunity to put our work down on paper. Um, you know, I think, it, you know, my co-author and I, Kathy Sanford, have been working um, in this area of work. Uh, you know, at the first school that I taught at was actually a big picture attempt at a kindergarten through eighth grade school. And so when was that? That was 2000 when we started the Highlander Charter School. And it was um, really fascinating because we were trying to do, um, you know, individual student learning plans, mentors, a lot of goal setting. And that was way before exactly. all this conversation about personalization. So why did you even want to do it back then? Well, because we were just enamored with the work that was happening at the high school level and felt like you couldn't just flick a switch once a kid hits ninth grade. And so there was a lot of pre-work that was able to happen around you know, building interest, having families understand deeply that their students were unique and had some and had special um, ways in which they wanted to see and view their own work. And so um, we were given the opportunity, you know, it was before race, uh, race to the top and all the um, kind of movement to uh, to really standardize everything. And so there was this window of time when we were able to do that work. Um, but what we did was we quickly realized that you know, after our first um, staff attempted to do this and we were doing it in a high poverty um, urban environment with students that were multiple grade levels behind in reading and math, and we weren't necessarily solving for a lot of those particular pieces. Like the kids were running into the school building and a lot of those students are now like 27, 28 years old and still talk about it as the golden ages of their time in education. Because they were excited. They, and they were, were so involved. excited. Yeah. Each one had their own mentor. Each one had their own project. Each one had their own, uh, you know, I used to have a, uh, <laughs> uh, like a boiler room off my classroom and in back, it was that crazy. Like we would have wet projects and, and bike rebuilds and all sorts of stuff happening like right there off the side of the classroom and so this is a great time to ask 
So did they learn? And what are they like now that these are kids in their 20s? They all developed an incredible sense of curiosity about the world, um, and they speak to it still, and they talk about those days. But I do think that, you know, in a lot of ways, we weren't meeting their needs in terms of, you know, the the necessity of being able to read by third grade, the importance of knowing fractions by fifth grade. Like, there were definitely students in that classroom that left those classrooms without that ability. So... What we realized was two pieces. First of all, that we really, when the standards piece came around and Race to the Top kind of ramped up, that there were aspects of just core instruction um, that we needed to figure out how to fit into that model and that we weren't solving for that. And I think the Met, even at the high school level and, and big picture, are still wrestling with a lot of those pieces. Um, what is the balance? What is the amount of time you commit to one versus the other? But the second piece was that, you know, I was incredibly passionate about that work and there were several other teachers in the building that were, but once they left or once, um, you know, certain teachers that it was too much effort, we weren't able to replace them. Ah, the hero teacher problem. Exactly. It has plagued education forever. Exactly. And the workflow was incredibly overwhelming and we couldn't even recruit new teachers because when we described what the work entailed, it was, it was just too much. And so, you know, in some ways that school has really kind of come back to the center, I would say, in terms of what, um, what, the, what, what they're doing with regard to education. My son actually still goes to the school. Um, it's a great place to learn, but it's, um, it's no longer doing those pieces. And I think that that's kind of true for a lot of schools. And so what we were asking ourselves when we sat down and wrote the book is if we're really trying to rethink education and we're doing this across a whole range of types of schools, not ones that have a fresh start like we did at that charter, um, but ones that have been, you know, either persevering with the same building leader for a long period of time under similar circumstances or a new building leader that's coming into a new situation. Everyone wants to rethink schools right now and they want to redesign what the classroom experience looks like for students but they just don't know where to begin. Right. So that's a a fantastic sort of backdrop to this because you're exactly right. We are talking about rethinking, reimagining. We're doing this in the context of knowing our kids are struggling with uh, everything from social-emotional issues to, gosh, am I going to have a flying car eventually? Or am I going to have a job, et cetera, et cetera. So let's kind of zoom up to the present, zoom up to the book, and talk about how you walk us through this balance question how do we balance yeah and you know one of the the ways that we balance it is by really deeply relying on the knowledge base of our local stakeholders um that's a piece that we learned really deeply in rhode island uh over the last five years we have launched a statewide fellowship called fuse ri and what fuse ri did was when we started to really you know, get pulled into this work from a professional learning standpoint, what we realized is that the people that knew the most were those in, you know, whether hero teacher is the right word, we call them Titan teachers at one point, we now call them fused fellows, but they're teacher leaders. They, they love teaching. They, they deeply uh, love learning new ways of reaching students and they always want to improve their practice. And they do believe deeply in their heart that they need a new, that the world needs a new vision for teaching and learning. And so they're constantly trying and iterating and almost running their own continuous improvement cycles right within the classroom. And so by bringing those folks kind of up in a way of giving them an opportunity to partner with each other, um, learn some skill sets around coaching and consultancy and, and how you work with and, and run a district level meeting, uh, building level meetings, um, 
they really felt way more empowered to take all of that knowledge from their own personal classrooms. And when they started to go into other classrooms in other districts, not their own, it was just a match made in heaven because those teachers in those buildings were waiting for somebody to kind of be a thought partner for them. And so in that we have just, you know, when you actually break down what personalized learning or blended learning or deeper learning or whatever it is that we're, we're talking about project-based learning, it's a series of strategies and it's a series of strategies that leverage a series of resources. And the more often that you can get people talking about what strategies they're using how they align to the practices or behavior changes that we want to see, uh, then, then they, they, that idea, the ideation starts to move and starts to kind of uh, flex across the state. And that's really what's happened in Rhode Island. That's cool. So, Sean, in your book, you talk about five phases of development. Take us through what those five phases are and how that brings us to a point of thinking about strategy. So, well, so basically let me, let me back up a step and then I'll get to that. So the way that we do this process is we, we really want to first start in our, and it's a five phases is really the way we break the book down. But the way we want to start is we want to have a real vision for what these pilots or these, these redesigned classrooms are going to look like. So you want to talk a little bit in the aspirational and you want to really start to think about, you know, are we really trying to get at a place where there's a lot more dialogue happening in the classroom? Is that, is that our goal? Are we trying to get to a place where there's actual students creating media in the classroom? Are we trying to get to what, what is it that we're actually trying to do? And we want to name it and we want to put it out there. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about how do you vision well? Cause I think that unfortunately in education for a very long time, we haven't, we just assume that everybody knows what everybody wants to do. And so once you get to that point, then you really have to start to articulate more clearly if we walk in and it's successful, what behavior changes do we actually see on the parts of teachers and on the parts of students? But before you can do those pieces, you have to kind of know where you're starting from as well. And so we do a lot of like student shadows. We do a lot of looking at subgroup data to see who's, who's benefiting from the current structure and who isn't. We do a lot of focus groups with students. We do a lot of focus groups and surveys with parents. But so we're collecting all that information to then also inform um, those decision points. And then only then, once then you start to like decide, okay, so if this aspirational vision and these are the practices, the behavior changes we want to see, and this is the reason why, who are the right people in our building to carry this forward? And so we, in the book, we lean very heavily on Roger's adoption curve of like thinking about, you know, folks who are innovators or may not be the right folks because they may not be looking for a system to drive behavior, right? Whereas the early adopter folks are the ones that really have a little bit of cachet amongst the staff. If they're doing it, other people might be able to see how they could potentially do it. And they also are the ones that are going to stick with the, the challenges of, of building the actual strategies and building the, aligning it to curriculum and figuring out what the performance tasks are going to look like. And so we find those teachers and then we get to the strategies. And when we get to the strategies, we also really deeply believe that you can't do that in isolation. So if you have multiple um, early adopter teachers that you're able to work with, great. They can form some sort of PLC in the building, but ideally you want a little bit of embedded coaching, somebody to actually be in the room with them. So that's where the fellowship has been valuable. So from a strategy standpoint, again, it has to kind of start from that point and then work its way down. So from an example uh, standpoint, um, I was in a building um, last year about um, toward the end of the year, because it's the beginning of the school year. And right now there's um, I haven't built in buildings yet, which is really actually very sad. But, um, and so I was in a classroom and a teacher had a Eureka math lesson, uh, that was really around, um, area 
And the idea was within this particular lesson that was already laid out for them, uh, this is a fifth grade classroom, it was already laid out for them how you were supposed to basically build a building. But for this particular school, they really wanted to build the authenticity of the projects. And they wanted, you know, they didn't have the full capacity to do project-based learning in terms of like actually having the curriculum capacity to do that. But this teacher was kind of charged with figuring out how to make these, uh, pro- make these lessons more authentic for students. So she, you know, basically turned this into kind of like an interdisciplinary project where they did a bunch of research about the buildings in this, this city of Cranston where, they, um, where the students live. And each student got to pick a building. And so what was able to happen within the classroom was there was the core Eureka content that students were working through and they were using some of IXL um, lessons to kind of also reinforce some of those pieces. They were working in small groups to kind of get through their their like low level task that Eureka was asking them to do on uh, chart paper. But then the next piece from that was then they had to pick their building and they came together as groups and actually rebuild that building in Google draw on the computers using kind of like almost like a SketchUp model. And it was really great. And they learned so much more about their community. They didn't know that half these buildings even existed in their community. And then the amount of, um, you know, learning about negative space and learning about like all the different things that you would have to do if you're actually going to map an actual building, not just the building that the uh, curriculum gives you. Um, just took the learning to a whole nother level and was really able to give that push that the students at the upper level um, who were already maybe in mastered area even before starting this lesson, as well as the students that needed more time and remediation, they were able to get a lot more time with the teacher to be able to kind of work through those pieces and actually be able to be successful as well in a group environment. That's a great example. So I love that example. And what you've done or what that teacher did was integrated the real lessons that they had to do, the lessons around measurement or geometry and so forth, put it in the context of their own community. And even though they weren't able to go out and build a new building, they were actually able to employ it from a very practical point of view. And that's fantastic and almost takes no money or change, just a change of attitude, a change of perspective. How do you, how do you get a teacher to start thinking about the world and thinking about lessons that way. So I I think the lesson that we learned early on is that there are a lot of teachers that are already doing that. You don't have to get them to do anything. They're the ones that are already doing it. The challenge, and this is where the book really, you know, the entire intent of the book is like, how do you get to scale around that? Because that is a teacher in fifth grade. And even her partner teacher on the other side of the hallway wasn't doing that. And so that's really where, I think the innovation comes in is like, we want all of our kids to have great experiences. We don't want it to be, well, you get a great teacher in second grade, but then you're not going to see another one until fifth grade. And, and parents understand that and students understand that we've almost come to like, just accept that. And so where the book kind of then goes next is like, so how do you document that? And how do you actually measure what the impact is of that? And so a big part of our book, almost three chapters of it, is around how do you evaluate these pilots to know that from a behavior change standpoint, you know, and we, we leverage the Carnegie Foundation's PDSA work around the family of measures. We think about the process measure and we have our walkthrough tool, which has our actual practices that we think are really valuable. And the schools we work with almost select from that to say this is where we want to see change happen the most. And so in that classroom, you would have seen high marks for that teacher across that behavior change. 
But then you also want to look at the outcome measure and make sure that still when they're doing, whether it's their star testing or their iReady testing or whatever in math, that they're also still retaining those concepts. And then lastly, the balance measure is really important too. We, are, we want to make sure that when we ask those students, we don't want to assume that they're enjoying that learning more than they really are. And so we want to make sure that we're still having those focus groups and surveys with those students to see if they're feeling like they have more choice or more agency in their learning. Um, and if they feel like it is more authentic um, and not just a, a series of exercises they are being put through. And so if you build that case around behavior changes are happening, outcomes are going up and kids are happier, parents are happier. Then as a building leader, you have a lot more power to start pushing that work. Now, at the same time, you really can't expect every teacher is going to embrace this at the same level as an early adopter. So you then have to start thinking about, okay, how are we, um, and we talk, I talk about it as like a squirrel that's gathering nuts, right? Like how are we as the, you know, if we're working with that building or if there's a, you know, a design team that kind of comes together to do this work from the get go, how are they collecting those lessons? Because that lesson that that teacher put together to do that work that lesson now is valuable beyond her classroom. It's valuable to that other fifth grade teacher, but it's valuable to all of the other 16 fifth grades uh, schools that have fifth grades in that district. And it's really valuable to the entire state. So we're actually looking at now from an OER standpoint, like how does that lesson that she now augmented become some sort of an OER component that now anybody can access and be able to do? Because a lot of times that's really what it takes is that system to be able to support it. And I think the other takeaway that I took from your book is that even as you said, we have to reimagine classrooms and learning for our kids. We also have to reimagine, therefore, the professional development that we're giving to teachers, right? Because we have one view of professional development uh, still that sometimes is, is, is pretty awful. I'm not sure most teachers still like the kind of professional development they have to go through. Give us a vision for what professional yeah. development in this world where we're trying to scale these great practices, what does that look like? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's um, really in this model, the idea would be that it's two parts. It's just in time because, you know, at that point, after that teacher has already developed both those strategies for making it more authentic and making it interdisciplinary and making it so that it has that differentiated scaffolding for different students in the classroom. Now, instead of having a general PD on those concepts where you bring in some general expert who hits everybody with a general way of doing these general practices, you have a very specific unit that all fifth grader teachers in that building have to run. And you have, you know, ideally you would video the, the fifth grade teacher that did it so that you have visual way of seeing how that works. And that fifth grade teacher is live and doing that pretty much every day of the, of the week. So you can go in and visit, you can go in and observe, and she can be involved in the professional learning to help support her colleagues in moving in that direction. At the same time, you have to be realistic in PD. And so you can't expect every teacher to, to, to take to this and take off instantly. You know, we talk in the book, there's a, a particular researcher who talks about, you can expect an average teacher to change their practice by about 10% a year. Mm. You shouldn't expect any less of them but it's also kind of a little bit over the top to expect more. And so I think that you have to kind of measure your expectations of how much change we're expecting teachers to make in a given amount of time. But if we are both collecting the data to show that this is compelling and we're giving them the scaffolding by showing them what these lessons can actually look like 
and how the practices can actually play out. And we have visual evidence of it. And we have a place where you can go for more, uh, more opportunity to do it. You really can't expect less. Like they should be able to meet you where you're at at that point and feel supported. Great. And that model show don't tell, but show is, uh, close to every journalist's heart, um, and I think is actually something that you really deliver on in this book. So Pathways to Personalization, a Framework for School Change. Sean, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. This has been the Ed Surge On Air Podcast. Each week, as you know, we feature conversations like this one, and we hope you'll subscribe if you haven't already to, to keep up with all of our episodes. And you can support the show by taking a minute to leave a rating or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. So if you're on the Apple Podcasts app, um, click on the five stars. Or if you're listening to us on Stitcher, uh, do the same. Or if you're on iTunes, uh, take a minute to, to write a quick review. It really helps. This episode was cobbled together by me, Jeff Young, thanks to Betsy Corcoran and to Chris Hattori. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education. Thanks for listening. 